Welcome to episode 14 of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. Today's episode is all about grief and loss and one woman's story of taking the good from the bad. I wanted the world to know that my son had died in these horrific circumstances. It was coming up for the summer holidays and I just didn't want anyone else to go through what I was going through. And I was really, really passionate about that. It's time to be your best version of you. No fluff, no nonsense, only practical ways for you to be your own extraordinary. We learn from the real stories of real people who've been there and survived the life challenges that we all face. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. Welcome to the rediscovery of me. I'm your host, Holly Hartley. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. So it's the penultimate episode of series one. One more week to go after this one. And I have a favour to ask of you, if I may. I'm in the process of planning series two and would really welcome your constructive feedback, good or bad. Any thoughts or ideas on how series one has gone or things that you'd like me to include in series two? Well, please send them over to me at contact at rediscoveryofme.com. I will reply to all emails. As ever, you can contact me straight from the website at rediscoveryofme.com. Right, let's get on with today's show where you're going to meet a quite remarkable woman. My guest on today's show is here to share her story in the hope that other people don't have to suffer her pain. On the 3rd of July 2011, 13-year-old Dylan Stephen Ramsey was out swimming with two friends. Dylan swam for about 20 minutes but later got into trouble in the water. Despite the best efforts of his friends and a group of divers, Dylan was tragically pronounced dead at the scene. Today, his mum, Becky, is a water safety campaigner. She's spoken to over 130,000 people about water safety and, in particular, the dangers of cold water shock. Today, she's here to tell her story. She is the incredible Becky Ramsey, B-E-M. Hello. Hi, Becky. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and for sharing your story. I know that this is something that you now dedicate your life to so that others don't have to suffer like you have in the same way. So should we start off by talking a little bit about the wonderful Dylan? I believe that he was a very capable young man. I've heard you say he was a young man I was proud to call my son. To have had him for 13 and a half years was an absolute blessing because we wouldn't have wished for a better firstborn child. He was perfect in every way. He really was. Dylan was an amazing young man. Um, he strived to just be better at everything and he, he was just amazing. And I am so proud that he was mine for 13 and a half years. You can say, was it better to have loved and lost or to have never loved at all? And I think that's a really, really hard question to answer because it's so hard to have lost Dylan. But I can't imagine my life to have not have had him in it. So what was he like, Becky? He was charismatic, he was full of charisma, he loved life, he loved family, um, he loved sporting activities, he loved free running, he loved people, he really enjoyed music, different genres of music. Sometimes you'd be listening to him and he's like listening to Bob Dylan, like which just so wasn't <laughs> his era, or, you know, um, I don't know, Oasis, or loads and loads of... Di he just had such a wide variety of music that he loved. And that was Dylan. Um, he was a helper. If if it was winter and, and drives were full of snow, Dylan would be the one out there flexing his muscles and <laughs> clearing all people's drives. You know, a little bit of that was probably vanity, but a lot of that was because he had a kind heart and he just wanted to help people. The amount of trainers he ruined, pushing people out of our street in the snow was unbelievable. <laughs> um, he was very funny. He had lots and lots of friends. He was one of a kind. He really was one of a kind. I've never met anybody like Dylan Anna, before him and I've never met anybody like Dylan after him. Mm -hmm. And that is testament to the young man he was. He was just amazing. I've never heard one person say mm. a bad word about him. And that that's amazing. Just to think my boy was loved by so many people and he's missed by so many people. Yeah. It's crazy. It's a crazy world we live in and it's a cruel world we live in. 
Um, to have to go through this kind of pain as a mum, I don't think anybody should have to go through this. It's the worst punishment in the whole world. Mm. You can't help but feel, did I do something wrong? Did I not do something right? Um, I fully take my responsibility where Dylan died, um, where Dylan's death's concerned. I didn't teach him about the dangers in and around open water. And I can't apologise enough for that. And I can't change things. I can't bring him back to teach him. Um, But what I can do is teach others. And what I can do is ensure that Dylan's legacy lives on for the better, not for worse. Mm. He's not known as the boy who drowned. Mm. Doing it for Dylan and Dylan Ramsey is known as the boy who saved lives. Mm. His, his, His being still is here. He's... His presence is still here, although he isn't. He still leaves a mark every single day in people's lives. I was actually watching you, looking at your Facebook page when I was doing my research and I saw some clips of Dylan because obviously I never met Dylan, didn't know Dylan, and he looks like such a beautiful, bright, lively, vibrant young man. He's exactly Dylan to a T, exactly. He's left such a mark on people. I can't even put into words how amazing my son was. And and it is, and still is. Mm. Um, He he was everything to everyone. He was the person that brought people together. He was the person that closed the divide between, Mm. you know, rich and poor Mm. or, you know, elderly and youth. Uh, Dylan was just the one that didn't care about other people's opinions. He did what was right. Special boy. Yeah, very special young man. Is it okay if we talk a little bit about the day of the accident and what happened? Yeah. So on the day of the accident, Dylan's 13, he'd been out at a mate's house, slept over at a friend's house, and you spoke to him about the morning, on that morning, sorry, about coming to tidy his bedroom. Yeah. I think that's something that we all empathise with when we've got kids. And then you took one of your other sons to football, and... Dylan then came home in the meantime and convinced his dad that he could go out for a bit longer before he tidied his bedroom and he grabbed his swimming stuff and off he went. And whilst you were there at the football with your other son, you you received some phone calls to say that Dylan had been in an accident and you then raced to get to the scene. I kind of hate asking you this because this is every parent's nightmare and I don't want to feel like I'm intruding, but can you tell us a little bit about what that's like about what happened if that's okay yeah of course um so as you say I was at a football tournament with my other little boy I'd spoke to Dylan at 11 o'clock asked him to come home and tidy his bedroom and he'd convinced me to stay out a little bit later and then he came home and convinced his dad to stay out a little bit later like you say grabbed his towel grabbed his trunks his shorts and off he went and it wasn't unusual for Dylan to be going around to a mate's to go to his jacuzzi and he would grab his trunks and his towel and say I'm off swimming so it, right. it nobody could have known mm. where he was going mm. or what he was doing so after I'd received the first call um I missed the call uh, it was a police officer and I, they rang back and I answered the call and it was a lady and she said to me basically I'm with your husband and for a split second I I genuinely thought this lady was about to tell me that she was having an affair with my husband. And I really wish that's what she were telling me. But it wasn't. She said that Dylan had had an accident and could I get to the quarry as quickly as possible. At that time, I just thought that Dylan had fallen or he was hurt, but the water didn't enter my head, not even for a split second. My mum was driving, we ended up getting blocked at some traffic lights, there was a policeman behind us and he was getting out of his car and he was trying to tell my mum off basically for erratic driving. Um, Before he got a chance to say anything, I was in his car and I was begging him, just get me to the quarry because the little boy you can hear about on your radio is, is my son. And did so he quickly spring to action? When... He knew straight away, because obviously he's listening to what's mm. going on at the mm. quarry on his radio. So he knew straight away, put his blues on, we got out of the traffic, we was we was off down the A6, like a main road near where we live. Didn't really realise how bad it was, although I was, I was rocking in the chair backwards and forwards, holding my hands on my head, and I was begging that it was going to be all right. So I think in my gut, I knew it was bad, but in my head, I was just... Come on, Dylan, be all right, please, be all right, please, be all right. And I kept repeating those words to myself. 
And I looked over at the police officer's speedometer and he was doing over 100 miles an hour and we was in a 40 zone and I knew it was bad. We got to a garage that's quite local to us and when I passed that garage, I just have a, have a little second because as we passed that garage on that day, code nine or code one was said over the radio. I still to this day don't know whether it was code one or code nine, but I do know that that was the time my son was pronounced dead and I was not quite there. When I did get there, it was like something out of a film. Uh, people everywhere, cordons everywhere, police everywhere. Um, they ripped the police cordon because obviously I was in a police car, but I jumped out of the car whilst it was moving. Um, my husband was holding the ambulance back because that's the only thing I'd said to him was, I thought Dylan was, was hurt, like I said, I thought he'd fallen and maybe a broken arm, broken leg, even broken back, broken neck potentially. And I, the only thing I'd said to my husband was, do not let him go to the hospital on his own because he'll be scared. So my husband had stood in front of the ambulance eventually after he'd got out of the riot van and stuff. It, it, it stood in front of the ambulance and wouldn't allow it to go. I jumped out of this police car and he, he screamed at me that Dylan was dead. And I collapsed. And I think that's the biggest point that I let him down. Because I told my husband to keep the ambulance there because he'd be scared. And then being told something like that, everything went out of my head and the ambulance sneaked off and I wasn't allowed to be in the ambulance. I begged a number of times to, to be allowed to go in the ambulance, but I wasn't allowed. Um, and it was, I feel, potentially, he could have heard my voice and that could have made a difference. He was only underwater for three minutes in total. And people survive after being in the water for so much longer. I just, I let him down so much in so many ways. And I'm so sorry for that. God, I just want to give you a hug. You didn't let him, and I know I can't give advice, and I know I can't say, you have not let your boy down. You have not. I taught him road safety. I taught him stranger danger. I taught him drinking drugs. I taught him to be nice to people. I taught him to treat people the way that you want to be treated yourself. And I know I do beat myself up a lot about it. You can't teach something that you don't know. Mm. And I didn't know. I I was never taught about cold water shock. I was never told how dangerous open water really is. I was never even told the difference between a swimming pool and open water. Mm. You know, it's just the things that you know in your head. Um, and when I started looking into the the causes or how you could potentially die in open water, I was shocked. I was yeah. absolutely amazed. Why is this not being taught in our schools? Why are children dying? Why are so many lives being lost on an annual basis? Why is the government not doing something more? What You know, um, the fire service aren't, don't even have a statutory duty to go out and attend um, water-related incidents. They do that because it's kind of been pushed upon them. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? They don't even have funding for that. So... Whose responsibility is it when we're losing 400 to 600 lives a year in open water? It's somebody's responsibility. And I'm angry at the government. I'm angry that nobody put in place water safety lessons. I'm angry that this wasn't already, you know, that what's done today wasn't done before my son died because had there been as much done then as what's done now, I'd still have my son. And in some ways, I think it's because we lost Dylan that so much is done now because I just, I know, I've never stopped. From mm. the day of losing Dylan, I have never stopped trying to share his story, get mm. his mess, get my messages out, share the dangers. You know, there's so much concerned with open water. Let, let, let's come on to that in a minute, Becky, because I, you know, as a teacher who's worked in schools for over 20 years, I agree. You know, I think we talk a lot about road safety, but I don't think we talk to the same way about cold water, you know, about water safety. Let, let's come back to that. 
it must have been so hard to, to make sense of Dylan's death. You know, it was put down to drowning by misadventure and he died of cold water shock. You know, he was a really sporty, very physically fit and young man, a capable and capable and a really good swimmer. How do you make sense of that? I know that you've done a lot of research over time now so that you understand you know about cold water shock and all that kind of thing but has it helped you to understand what happened honestly no it's given me more questions than ever because I think had I just had the inquest and been told what I'd been told then and then not done anything after that then I would have been none the wiser but I think because I had the inquest and I was learning about cold water shock and what can happen cold water shock's a very quick and instant thing you jump into water or you fall into water and it happens pretty immediately so Dylan being in the water for 20 minutes before getting into difficulty says to me that he didn't die of cold water shock but that is still what's on his coroner report and there's nothing I can do to change that um I'm in talks with the coroner actually at the minute and this is eight years on you know saying like can you answer more of my questions mm. and legally he doesn't have to so whether or not I will ever get what actually really happened that day I'm not 100% sure and as for the research and stuff it's given me more questions than answers although it's made me more open or more aware of how easy it is to get into trouble in open water or to lose your life in open water and I've realised how common it is mm. like that's really scary mm. that it's so common mm. so almost immediately after Dylan's death you started looking for these reasons why Dylan died and and since then you've been doing un undertaking all this research into what happened and this cold water shock and you say that you very quickly realised that something had to change you know especially to do with the law and education tell us a little bit more about that um I'm not sure if it was the Sunday. So Dylan died on the Sunday. I'm not sure if it was a Sunday evening or the Monday. I went on Granada Reports with Elaine Wilcox, absolutely lovely lady. And she'd just gone to do a report on what had happened. And she didn't want to see parents. That's not what she wanted to do. But she bumped into us. And we gave uh, an interview. We had a choice. We could either let the police read a statement on our behalf or the police could read a statement, just a, a general statement, or we could go live. And I just immediately thought, if anybody's going to hear about my son, it's going to be out of my mouth. It's not going to be lies. It's not going to be made up. It's not going to be... It's going to be as true as I know it, and I'm his mum, so surely I know as, as much as what's out there. So that's what I did, basically. I went on the news and said, if the government's not going to do anything, then I am. And that was literally within 24 hours of Dylan's death. Mm. Um, within two weeks of his death, maybe three weeks of his death, sorry, I was in my first school talking about water safety and just sharing Dylan's story more than anything right at the beginning because mm. I didn't know anything at the beginning. I just wanted to, I wanted the world to know that my son had died in these horrific circumstances. It was coming up for the summer holidays and I just didn't want anyone else to go through what I was going through. And I was really, really passionate about that. So I had a week between Dylan's funeral and the breakup of school. And I actually fitted two schools in that week. And the first school was Dylan's school. <laughs> Ridiculous idea. Going to Dylan's school and giving a, a, a presentation about losing your son. And the only thing I could think was I saw all these uniforms in front of me, all these heads. And I was searching for Dylan and that's all I could do. I was stood on that stage searching for Dylan just and he wasn't in the crowd. And that that was hard. That was really hard. I don't think there's many that could do that, Becky. You know, I think you're pretty unique and well, you're unique and special anyway, but you know, I think that takes real a real sense of courage. You know, as you've said already, about four to 600 people drown in the UK every year and more than half the fatalities happen in inland waters like canals, rivers, lakes, quarries and reservoirs. I totally agree, Becky, that we do an awful lot to educate kids about the dangers of, of road safety. But I don't honestly think that we do the same for water safety, you know, and as you've already mentioned, four to 600 people who drown in the UK every year more than half of the fatalities happened in inland waterways, such as canals, rivers, lakes, quarries and reservoirs. 
you know, and having worked in schools for so long, I totally get your point. And I think as well, I think it's because it, it's almost like it's a threat that if you do live inland and you don't live on the coast, because we're in such a cold country, we're not big swimmers in the outdoors, are we? You know, it's and when we get these hot summers, it's so unusual that these kids are just not aware of the dangers because, we, you know, and what you were saying before, Becky, about feeling guilty, you know, I'm a mum with my hand on my heart. I'm going to go and do it now. But until this point, I've not talked to my kids about the dangers of swimming in cold water and swimming in the reservoir. You know, I, I really don't think that kids are as aware of these dangers. Have you found that when you speak to young people that they are really receptive, that obviously your story is so compelling and emotional and moving and profound and all of those things, but do kids take it seriously, what you're saying to them? Yeah, do you know what? It, I've had such an amazing response from 130,000 plus people that I've spoke to. It's been amazing. They are what have kept me going. They are what have kept me going to the next school and the next school and the next college or the mm. next university. Mm. Because actually, you could hear a pin drop when I'm speaking for a start. Obviously, I'm speaking about something emotional. I can go into schools where they've got a massive problem with children being rife, like being disruptive or whatever. And they'll, they'll warn me before I go into school, these kids are probably not going to listen to you. These kids are probably not going to take on board what you're saying. They're probably going to mess around. They're probably going to get the phones out. And do you know what? They don't. And if they do, I make a stance straight away and ask them to leave the room, but please put the phone away and then come back when they want to listen. Mm. I want to teach them what I want to teach them. Mm. I don't want to be chucking anybody out of any educational session that I'm giving. But I also don't, I don't demand respect, but I, I ask for a little bit of respect. It's hard doing what I'm doing, standing in front of, of 40 kids at a time or 400 kids at a time and burying my soul and telling them about the worst day of my life and Consequently, the the following weeks, the following months, the following years, um, it's not something that I take lightly when I go into schools and teach. I take it very seriously and I've got children now who who contact me who've had children of their own and had a talk from me seven years ago and they're now promising to teach their children water safety. I can't ask for more than that. I can't ask for my message to stick with somebody longer than seven years till you've had your baby and you're going to teach that to your children. I genuinely feel that... I have been a massive part of changing this country for the better. And Absolutely. that takes a lot to say that because... I don't want to sound big-headed. I'm not... I, I'm, I'm very humble in what I do. Very, very humble. But... There has been so many changes because I won't shut up, you know. Mm. One year I called the Prime Minister a murderer every single time there was somebody that died in open water because as far as I was concerned that year, my head wasn't in a great place, mm. but as far as I was concerned that year, they're the ones that can prevent it. Get it in schools, teach children, get it on the education system, get some adverts on the TV. You know, I've, it's just crazy that it's not, it's not already there. And every time I go into a school, people like yourself, teachers and stuff, they, they say the exact same thing. This should be part mm. of the national curriculum. Mm. Why mm. isn't it? It was interesting that you said before that you're going to universities as well, because I do think this isn't just about kids. No. You know, I do think this is about older people as well. As well. You know, you, you, I read somewhere that you said that you wish you could make more kids more aware. I wish they could walk one day in my shoes, because that would mean that kids wouldn't take the risk of putting their parents, families and friends through this for 10 minutes worth of fun you know that there are so many dangers that kids are unaware of and I'd never really considered this she's talked about pockets of cold water hypothermia underwater debris you know and that does apply to adults as well there's something enticing about water especially still water and I think about the reservoir where I live I live in you know near Kinder Scout and Kinder Reservoir there it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's in a spectacular setting. It reflects the landscape and the sky. Yeah. And on a hot summer's day, you just think, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, but actually, 
sitting here and talking to you now has totally changed my perspective on that. Yeah, do you know what? I'm not I'm not even here to say don't go swimming in open water. That's not what I say in schools either. My message is if you want to take it up, take it up as what it is. It's a sport, it's a specialised sport that you need specialised equipment, i.e. personal protective equipment. So you need your dry suit, you need um, buoyancy edge, you need floats, you need bright, luminous yellow caps so that people can head count you in the water. Yeah. And that's what it's about. Find somewhere where you can do it with the tools that you need to do it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you can go on and, and do it elsewhere, uh, you know, when you've learned mm-hmm. the, the skills. I, I often say, you know, you learn to cross the road. So you learn the green cross code and you learn to cross the road safely. Who would go and cross the M6? It's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So my son learned to swim in a swimming pool mm-hmm. and then went and chose to swim in a, in a quarry, which was two totally different environments. And he was a good swimmer in a swimming pool. And he probably was okay in the quarry to a certain extent. But the problem is that there's all these dangers that he was unaware of. And had he known of some of these dangers, maybe he'd have been able to help himself before he got to the stage that it got to. The cramp, you know, I say to kids in schools, if you're going to ignore what I say, and if you're going to go and jump in the nearest reservoir this summer, which I hope you don't, just be mindful that if you do get cramp and stuff like that, get out. Because 10 minutes down the line, you might not be able to move your limbs. You might not be able to help yourself. And I think it's it's just about the education. You know, it's... You can you learn to drive, but doesn't mean to say that you can drive around a Formula One racetrack. Mm-hmm. You need mm-hmm. different skills to do different things. And that is what I'm trying to teach people. That it, I'm not trying to steer people away from swimming in open water. If I was to do that, I would literally be lynched by all the open water swimmers because it is a growing sport. What I am trying to do is educate people so that they know, one, that there is safe places to go and do it, and two, not to do it in your local reservoir, your local quarry, your your rivers and also be mindful that it's not just the people that choose to go swimming that lose their lives around about half of the fatalities just just under half the fatalities that we have in hope and water that are accidental were people that have slipped tripped or fallen into the water after either a night out drinking or a bike ride just runners joggers what runners and joggers are our highest risk believe it or not really yeah and these are things that people just don't know Um, so like you say this does apply to adults it really really does when I go into universities they are just as shocked as when I go into primary schools they are just as educated when I finished as what the primary Mm. school kids are it's Mm. really really crazy and People are so receptive to what I'm doing. Mm. Um, like the fire service have took me under the wing and they do more now, so much more than what they ever mm. did before. It's coming more relevant as well. Though, you know, the global warming, we're getting warmer, you know. And I think, like you said, the growing sport that is open water swimming. Yeah. You know, more and more people are doing it. It's becoming more accessible. But as you say, just make sure that you do it in the right way with a group of professionals who know what they're doing, exactly. not on your own. Exactly. Have a lifeguard present or at least somebody that that knows what to do if you get into trouble. It's so frustrating. Um, you know, I have respect for open water swimmers and I say what I say mm. with great confidence. You know, this is an open water, it's a, a, a growing sport. I just wish they had the same respect for us parents that had lost children in mm. open water mm. because I quite often say, oh, you should just go wild swimming here or you should just go and jump in here or you should... And they're, they're advertising for my children to go and take these risks and that's not fair. Mm. That is not fair. I don't do the same on, on their ground or on their patch, if that makes sense. And I think that they should just be a little bit more mindful that actually you shouldn't be encouraging people to just go wild swimming here, there and everywhere when we look at the statistics of drowning, you know. Needs to be done properly. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the Doing It For Dylan water safety campaign then. I've not told you this so far, but I actually feel very connected to you because I think it was about 18 months ago, something like that, I was up at Thryberg Country Park in Rotherham and there was a big red sign on the side of the water with a throw line. Dylan's water safety campaign logo was on there, along with the name of a young man. I think his name was Thomas Ashley Barton. Yeah. And he was a young man who went swimming with four friends, drowned whilst trying to cool off one summer. And I was really moved. You know, I I didn't know much about Dylan's campaign then. And I actually went back to where we were camping and I Googled it and I actually read quite a little bit. And it's strange how you and I have connected this way. But... 
the campaign then is all about doing these very practical things that can make a difference really and that, that are there. So tell us about some of the things that the campaign achieves. I've worked with fire services and stuff. We've had lots and lots of throw lines put in place. So it's like basically it's like the lock defib cabinets. So you've got a ring 999, you get a cord, you open the box, right. you get the throw line out. But actually what's the most important thing about these throw line boards is that they all have a unique location code on, which means as soon as you ring 999 and ask for the fire service, which is something that not everybody knows to do anyway, but as soon as you ring 999 and ask for the fire service and quote that reference code, a fire service is then deployed immediately to your exact location. So for instance, in Doncaster, we had 12 signs put around one lake. If somebody was to go in at a certain entrance mm. point... Right. The emergency services would be able to get to the exact point where they right. were, not just the lake, not just an area. And time is of the essence when somebody's drowning. The nearest water incident unit at the time was 22 miles away. Dylan had no chance. Dylan had no chance. When he got into trouble in that water, there was no way any professional was coming to save his life if travelling 22 miles. Mm. It was not happening. That upsets me. That gets me frustrated. And what then gets me even more frustrated is that when they did arrive, different organisations, I'm not naming anybody, but different organisations went to different places. So one went to one quarry, one went to another quarry. There's three quarries in a very close vicinity and Dylan was drowning in the other quarry where there was no help. That really, really frustrated me, and I knew immediately, if nothing else, these bodies of water need to be location-coded so that the fire service or the emergency services need nowhere to come when you mm. make that mm. call. Mm. Like I said, I've spoken to over 130,000 people. I've been in numerous schools. I've done super learning days. They're probably my, my favourite thing to do because I get all day with a high school and literally get hour sessions or 50 minute sessions and I get five of them they are the most harrowing and they are the hardest to do and I come away from them feeling so drained so emotionally done in but they are the they're the ones where I know I'm getting the best message across because I've got 50 minutes with a classroom of 30 or 40 kids and it's just it's amazing how much these children and adults actually want to learn what mm -hmm. I'm teaching them yeah, sure. it's crazy you know they they actually want to know what I'm talking about and that's really really good you know that's really good the list is literally endless of things that I've done since starting doing it for Dylan I've worked with or volunteered with the fire service I've won numerous awards from numerous places Rosper won the Archangel award which is the highest accolade that they give out I've won local level awards I can't even put my awards out because I've got that many of them <laughs> but they're all very bittersweet and I think that's another reason why I don't put them out on show mm. like I understand that I've, I'm achieving something in Dylan's memory, but this is not what, what I wanted to be doing. It's mm. so bittersweet. Let, let's come back to that in a moment, if we might. Just, just going back to the work that you do as part of the campaign, one of the things that I saw was the play that's toured the schools in the run-up to the summer holidays, 60 Seconds of Summer. I think you did that in partnership with United Utilities, which is yeah. a big water company here in the UK. And I saw some footage of you on TV at Parklands Academy where Dylan was a student, and your words were, it's painful, but it has to be done. It is. It's. I don't think people realise how much of my heart and soul I put into my campaign, like literally every waking hour... I'm researching, I'm looking for schools to go in, I'm looking at what what can be done, what's being done, is anything changing, what's being done at government level, what's being done at local level. It's it's just, it's really, really difficult to keep a track of everything that's going on. But United Utilities, I've worked with them now for seven years in a row. Every year they've come to me and every year we've done a different campaign. And this year we wanted to do something a little bit different. So we had, the, we had 23 lines put in place in and around Lancashire and Manchester. And we had the 60 seconds of summer I know it got after the first it was paid for 20 schools I think by United Utilities the initial pilot of it then it got extended so it was paid for another 20 schools and then it was extended again so actually it's amazing now it's on I'm actually waiting at the moment for a hard copy of it and I'd like to get that into every school mm, in the country gosh, absolutely. Um, that's uh, an aim of mine we'll see what happens but that is a massive aim that they, they did such a good job and 
when I spoke to the schools that had had the play, they they were blown away. And it really was very much Dylan's story. It was based around two people's stories. So it's based around Dylan's story and a friend of mine who lost a son. But it was... It just seemed to be more Dylan's story. Maybe there was more, you know, maybe they got more out of what what happened to Dylan to put into a play, I don't know. But it was very much based on exactly what happened to Dylan. There was a few differences, but not many. Like, we had to keep it relevant to the Reservoir because it was obviously Mm. with United Utilities and Dylan died at a quarry. The other lad who it was about as well, we kind of used his family so his his relationship with his sister and his mum so that was his kind of part in the play if that makes sense but the actual story of the boy drowning I mean the the boy was even called Dylan Mm. in the play they asked could they call him Dylan I was like what else would you call him Mm. like if it's a play about Dylan what else would you call him of course you can call the boy Dylan and the actors and actresses were absolutely amazing I mean they was even crying and Mm. to them it was just an acting job but it was more than that and in this play they kind of play a little section of my voice works off a YouTube video that I've actually done and just saying about how hard it was and I think that's probably the harrowing bit for the students at school so they've just watched this play and then all of a sudden at the end when the little but well when the young man's died mum's explaining stuff and then it goes on to my voice recording so this actually changes to being a real life story and I think that's what hits the children that's what gets to them that's what gets them to go home and think yeah you know what we need to do something you're incredibly determined i am (laughs) you know despite how difficult this is for you you know that the selfless nature of what you're doing is is just utterly remarkable look is it okay if we talk a little bit about grief yeah of course you know you say that life isn't the same anymore and you, I read something that you wrote, you said Sunday dinner isn't the same anymore. You're a close family, you do everything together and nothing feels right. You sat at home at night and for a long time you were hoping that we would walk through the door, but it doesn't happen. And you and I spoke about before we started recording about, you know, you made his dinner every night for six months. How do you cope as a parent with grief of that magnitude? I think it's the same... <laughs> the same but the opposite as having a child the best way that I've found to describe grief is the elation that you have when you give birth to a child because your life's just changed for the better it's the exact opposite your life's just changed for the (laughs) totally the wrong reasons and I don't think you ever learn to deal with the fact that you've lost a child but I think you learn a different normal, a different way of life, a different normality, which isn't normal at all, but it's normal because, you know, you have routine, you get up, you do the dishes, you do the washing, you do this, you do that, you do the other. You do the mundane things in life that you are supposed to do, um, but it'd probably be easier to sit in a corner and cry, to be quite honest. I'm determined to, to get my message across because every year I see more children dying more teenagers dying more adults dying I think what did we learn from last year and as the numbers continually stay pretty similar I feel like um I know we're making a difference because I can see it's all over social media it's all over Facebook it's all over Twitter my problem is I suppose or my gripe is that It's the people that know about the dangers that are sharing it a lot now. So the fire services, RNLI, RLSS, um, all these different big organisations are the ones that are sharing it. It's not them that we need to teach. It's Mm. the children, it's the adults, Mm. it's the parents. How do we break away from... And obviously people see it because obviously if your fire service tweets it or Facebooks Mm. it, then as a person looking on social media you might come across it but how do we reach people as a masses i don't know i just know that that grief is is very different when you lose a child to losing any other loved one because i suppose in a way losing a grandma or a granddad or an auntie or an uncle even it's expected they're your elders they're supposed to go before you it just all feels the wrong way around if I could trade places with Dylan and give him his life back he would have made a difference in this world so much more than me 
it really, really would have made such a difference. He was destined to be somebody. And I think that is one of my biggest driving forces, is that this way he is still somebody in mm. a different way, mm. but he is still somebody he's not forgotten about. I don't care how much I talk about Dylan, I'll talk about him every single day to the day I die. And if people don't like it, that's, that's their problem, not mine. I don't think anybody would ever be critical of that and if they are then to be honest they're think, not worth it yeah i think you'd be pretty shocked well like we was talking before we recorded like about losing friends and mm. stuff mm. you know you do you lose people cross the road they don't want to speak to you you don't get invited out to things anymore and if you do get invited out to them you don't want to go because there's a void in your family you're going with a part of your family missing mm. it's like walking around with a piece of your heart hanging out all the time and it's like your heart still beats but it beats differently it's like it hurts it hurts to breathe it hurts to move it hurts to sleep it hurts to eat but not in the physical sense of mm. my hands are hurting in in the emotional sense of I'm just so broken inside I'm so broken this theme about losing friends and family is a, as you've already said, we spoke about it earlier, it comes up so often, you know, particularly when I'm talking to people who've been through real trauma. And I suppose, as you've said already, you know, it's because people don't know what to do or what to say. What should we do, Becky? Because, you know, I can't, I can't say that I know how you feel because I don't. And as I said to you earlier, you know, I think a lot of listeners will be sitting, listening to this thinking, you know, I, I don't ever want to know how that feels, if that doesn't sound... No, that is, that is exactly why I do what I do, because I don't want anybody to know how this feels. Do you know what the best advice I can give somebody to give, you know, if you're going to talk to somebody like me, is to don't be patronising and say that you understand how I feel because unless you've lost a child, you don't understand how I feel. You never could and I would never wish that upon you anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, and just always remember that even if you say the wrong thing, that's still right because it's better to say something than nothing at all. It's horrible to feel worthless and when you've got friends that you've had for 10, 15 years that will literally cross the road rather than say hello because they don't want to ask how you're doing because they're scared of the answer. That's the problem. It's their issues, not mine. But, yeah, just, you know what, just just speak to people if if you're if you know somebody that's lost somebody and don't be scared to mention that person who's died's name you're not reminding me that my son died when you say dylan i know he died i live with it every second of every day you're just reminding me that you remember him too you're reminding me that he left a, a mark on your life you're reminding me that actually yeah he still thought about and that's really important. Don't shy away from mentioning those that aren't here. Mention them even more because they're not here. You say, you know, that Dylan is not only just a massive part of your and your family's life, but he's also a part of your friends' lives as well. And when it was his graduation, you went and you handed out pictures of him to all his friends to make sure that he was part of that. When it was his 18th, you had a party for his friends and that Dylan is missed by lots of people. Every single day, it, I, I, I'm always shocked. I, I, my little girl asks me, she's, she's 13 now, and she asks me, what are we doing this year for Dylan's birthday? What are we doing this year for Dylan's anniversary? And sometimes I just want to be like, do you know what, let's just have something at home, let's just do something family-wise. And she's like, but what about his friends? And I say, all right, well, I'll put something on Facebook saying we're going to lay our flowers at such and such a time. And do you know what? I don't think there's ever been a year that nobody's been waiting for me when I got up there. And what, when you get to the quarry, you've got to go, like, round a bend. And it's it's like the dreaded walk. Like, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I'm going to lay flowers on his birthday, and I absolutely hate it. And I get round that corner, and I see all of his friends, and I just... It just blows me away. He's got friends that literally have the whole arm. He's tattooed Dylan all the way down the arm. He has friends who 
who've bettered themselves because they want to make him proud. He has friends who <laughs> doctorates in maths who it's it's not it's not just the things that we got to do with Dylan and the things that we got to share with Dylan that we miss. It's the things that we didn't get to do with him, the birthdays that we didn't get to have with him. So when we have these events, if you want to call them events, or when we have these days where we, we dedicate them to Dylan, that's for Dylan's friends as much as it is for my family. I want Dylan's friends to be able to come and and get hugs off Dylan's mum. That makes them feel a little bit better. It, it was so important for me to take a picture of Dylan to his prom. And... And it was so important to not ruin anybody's night because mm. it's a big night. They've just left school and I didn't want to be an emotional wreck and I was fine until two girls got out, two of Dylan's very close friends, female friends. And as soon as I seen them, we just all bust crying. And he was just like, wow, I'm so sorry I've messed up your makeup. You've just spent hundreds of pounds on that. <laughs> and, you know, and you know what? They didn't care. People come out and they was proud to, to carry Dylan in the top, you know, jacket pocket mm. or mm. in the clutch bag. Uh, it, I was allowed to go into the prom room to see it before everybody went in. And I, it, it was, it should have been such a special time for him. And... It should have been such a special time for his friends. And they wanted it, I think, as much as me. And I, I say that lightly because I don't know. But there were so many things on Facebook, like beforehand, saying things like, um, we just wish Dylan could be there. I mean, the prom was actually booked and it was actually booked, believe it or not, for the 3rd of July. No. School had done it all. Now, they hadn't done it on purpose. When they realised it was the 3rd of July, they changed it to the 4th of July. No, sorry, they changed it to the 2nd of July. So they actually went... So when it hit 12 o'clock, it turned into the anniversary, which I thought was probably the wrong way around. They'd have been better coming out of it. Um, but honestly, I think Dylan was there that night. I feel I feel Dylan's close to me. I feel that he's, he must be with me. I don't know where I get the strength to do what I do. I don't know where I get the courage to stand in front of 500 people on a stage and speak about the worst day of my life. I don't know where that courage comes from. I can't explain where it comes from. I can't explain what I I might go for. For instance, this is just a total example. I went up to Newcastle with a fire service once and I've done a lot of um, things where I've been just mingling in the street in the public so I will just tell my story to passers-by so that's what I've done usually if I was going to a big public event and I went to this one in Newcastle and I was speaking to this lady and she's like what's going to happen I said they're going to do a mock rescue they're going to chuck one at firemen in they're going to rescue him it's she went he's jumping from that bridge is he the Tyne bridge I'm like no is he extra what's he doing then and there was a guy actually threatening to commit suicide as I was about to give a water safety talk or was about to mingle with the public Anyway, um, he jumped and he was rescued and I couldn't speak for a little while, probably about half an hour. And then I felt it was even more poignant that I had to get up and I had to go and speak to people about what I was there for. And then a fireman handed me this microphone and he said to me, right, it's your turn. I was like, my turn for what? To tell your story. What, on a microphone in the middle of the town centre? You want me to just start talking about Dylan? Yeah, that's so I did. I thought, you know what, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. <laughs> so I did, and I put my head down. I thought, nobody's going to be listed to me. Who wants to hear a mad, crazy woman, middle of town when you're shopping? Who's, who's even going to stop? Anyway, I put my head down. I told my story, a few tears. Um, it got a little bit emotional. I put my head up, and I kid you not, I know this probably is a massive exaggeration, but it was like Glastonbury. It was like there was just hundreds of people stood there holding the kids, kissing the kids, telling them to listen to what I was saying. And I was just, out at that moment, I was in awe of all these people. But I think at the same time, they was in awe of me. And it was a really surreal moment because I just said this about my son to total strangers and they'd bonded with that they mm. they reconciled with it they they understood it they mm. well not understood it, that's not the right word they 
they empathised, I suppose is the right word. Mm. So trying to make sense of, of Dylan's death is about you working to ensure that his memory lives on. You know, you said, I didn't choose to live this life. I didn't choose to live without my son. That's the hand I was given. And that everything you do now is focused on making the world a better place because Dylan was in it. And the elation that you've already mentioned about, the elation that you feel when you have your baby and then when your baby's taken away. You know, I think that's a very eloquent way of, of articulating the kind of grief that you're going through. Does your work help you deal with your pain? I get asked this question quite a lot and I'm not sure. I think it helps me to process what's gone on. Mm -hmm. I think it helps me to deal with certain situations. So going into a school and speaking to children or going into a college and speaking to adults and then coming home and getting the messages of support that helps me get through to the next day. I don't think it lessens any pain. I don't think it reduces any pain. I don't think it takes anything away. But I don't think it adds anything either. Like, one thing that I say quite a lot is, you know, I could be at home, like I've already said, crying in a corner, but what would that achieve? Or I could be on a stage and speaking to you about my son and I'm achieving so much more by doing that. And I don't know, this it. This isn't the life I wanted to live. This isn't the hand. This isn't the the. This isn't what I expected. This wasn't my dreams and aspirations for my family, for my children. This, you know, one of the hardest things to deal with is the grief of of my children. Like actually, my daughter crying herself to sleep at night. You know, um, I wouldn't say it makes it easier. No, I would say it, it helps me to cope. Maybe. I don't know if you'd probably say that that's the same thing, but I don't feel it is. I, I don't think it makes it easier. It it doesn't matter if I'm sat here in a room talking to you about this or if I'm sat in a school talking about this or if I'm sat at home crying about this. I feel the same. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of knowing that people didn't take those risks over the summer because of my talks mm. Mm. and I've had lots and lots of messages like you saved my best friend's life because he didn't jump in the canal today you and I'm like this is crazy this is absolutely crazy but it, it that's probably what spurs me on to keep continuing to do what I do you've achieved an awful lot in your campaign work you know, you've won, as you've already said, multiple awards, but you haven't mentioned the one that you won in June 2019 <laughs> when you were awarded British Empire Medal, which, let's face it, is a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's quite a big deal when the Queen notices something that you've done, <laughs> I suppose. Um, yeah, it was a, how it, I was a bit shocked, to be honest. I got this letter and I thought it it been like for the wrong person I thought it wasn't for me and then it was all obviously confirmed that it was for me and it was real and it's all a bit surreal but still very bittersweet mm. as much as the Queen's an amazing lady and you know she's given me this huge 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 honour would I give it back and have my son back without a question mm. without a shadow of a doubt you can have all your rewards back I'll take back every nice person that I met um, you know like I said, this isn't the life that I wanted, but this is the life that I've got. It's an honour. It's an honour to have been honoured by the Queen. It's an honour. I, I, I don't know what else to say about it. It truly blew me away. I couldn't actually believe that, you know, now I can have these letters after my name and if I'm arguing for me nan, I'll use them. <laughs> but that's the only time. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's um, pretty surreal, yeah. And you've met some... Uh really quite important and influential people as part of your work as well, one being Prince William, our yeah. future king. Yeah, so um, I actually met Princess Eugenie two years prior to Prince William, so I was invited to Buckingham Garden Party, met Princess Eugenie, that she actually wanted to speak to me. I had no idea of royal etiquette, so I didn't know what to do. I 
touched her, held her hand, give her a hug, spoke to her before she spoke to me, did all these things that you're not supposed to do with royals, but I hadn't had the etiquette talk. And she was lovely. She didn't mind. And then this year I got a message from London Fire Brigade asking if I'd like to meet somebody very important. Now they told me where I was meeting, but wouldn't tell me who I was meeting. Of course I want to meet somebody really important. Yes, I put my name down. So I put all over my Facebook, I'm meeting somebody very important on the Silver Sturgeon, this massive boat in London on the Thames, like really, really, really prestigious boat. And then I got told very close to when we was meeting Prince William, it's actually Prince William, William that you're meeting, he's asked to meet you, and I was like, but you're not allowed to mention where you're meeting him. Oops, I've just had it all over my Facebook <laughs> for the past two weeks that we're going on the Silver Sturgeon, uh, get it off. Um, but yeah, luckily I just didn't mention that I, who I was meeting until I'd actually met him, so it wasn't too bad. Yeah, but he was such a lovely, lovely, lovely man and actually he is going to do our country proud, I believe, when he is our future King of England. I, it's a bit surreal even saying that I met the future King of England. We shared a moment. and um, Tell us about that. It was a very special moment to me. I don't know if it was the same for him. I took two Doing It For Dylan t-shirts and I gave him the two t-shirts and his wife, was Kate, was at the Chelsea Flower Show at the time and the first thing that came to my head was, it doesn't matter, you could do gardening in that or anything. And then I said, or oh, you can even sleep in it, wear it for bed. You know, like, that's what's common as doing it, wear t-shirts for bed. And I'll never forget saying that. Um, what did he say? He just laughed, he just laughed. He was just so down to earth. He was just like you or me. He was just such a gentleman. He was such a nice guy. He was everything that you see of him, everything that you think he's going to be. He's a, there's no front with him. Everything that you see is exactly how he is. And I told him in that, that meeting, we had about 20 minutes with him, and I told him that his mum would be very, very proud of who he was and what he'd done and what he'd achieved and the fact that he'd got married and ah, children. And he returned that compliment by saying, Dylan would be very proud of me. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that me and the future King of England had a moment, or 10 seconds if you want to say it was 10 seconds, but we shared a moment where actually we had a, a mutual respect for one another for the things that we're doing in, in memory of our loved ones. What message would you like to leave listeners with? Cherish the ones that you love. Always tell those that you love that you love them often. Never take life for granted because tomorrow is promised to absolutely no one. And you know what? Life can be so short and you need to ensure that you put the best of you into every day. If you're struggling, always ask for help because it is out there. And if you get rejected the first time, ask again and keep asking. I'd like to leave listeners, I think, with um, the feeling that they are lucky, that they have what they have. And if listening to my story has made them feel that little bit more lucky, then that's brilliant. I want your listeners to hug their children a little bit tighter tonight. I want your listeners to just appreciate what they've got. And let a couple of things slide, because not everything matters in life. It has been an honour to do this. It really has. And the way that you open your heart and share, as you said, the worst day of your life so that the rest of us can at least make a positive difference to our lives and the lives of our loved ones and our friends is... Uh, a very humbling thing and sitting here and listening to your story is you know a very very it's difficult for me Becky so I can't imagine how difficult it is for you and for that you know I want to say thank you from on behalf of everybody and all my listeners thank you from the bottom of my heart I really appreciate it you're very welcome thank you for having me and thank you for sharing Dylan's story because without things like this Dylan's legacy wouldn't live on and I genuinely feel that when I share Dylan's story you actually get to meet a little bit of him slightly, if that makes any kind of sense. We're going to make sure that we obviously shout this from the rooftops. 
Um, <coughs> so I'll make sure that I put in the show notes below the episode where people can download how to get hold of you. There's obviously the Facebook page. You've got your Twitter account. And if anybody, I think you've already said, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, then they should do via your Facebook page. Is that right? Yeah. So basically, since losing Dylan, I've become a person that people can speak to when they're in the hour of need. And I I am there for all those people that have lost loved ones. It doesn't have to be because of water. It doesn't have to be because your son or daughter or auntie or uncle's drowned. Um, You can have lost your loved one in any way, shape or form you still understand how I feel and I understand Mm. how you feel. So my inbox, if you will, is always open. And one thing that I do say to a lot of people who have lost loved ones is we are in it together forever. It's Mm. that simple. We are bound by grief. And before you even meet me, we've already got a bond. And before you even speak to me, we already have a bond. We already have something that, you might not have with somebody else so yeah my inbox my my phone number's out there you know um people can get hold of me however they want and i can talk as you as you've gathered (laughs) becky ramsey thank you very very much thank you so much for having me on becky's story doesn't make for easy listening few of us will ever have to experience the kind of pain that becky and her family have had to endure that this incredible, selfless, loving woman keeps her son's memory alive for the benefit of others is nothing short of remarkable. I am certain that Prince William was right. Dylan really would have been proud of his mum. So let's all honour Dylan's name today, and Becky's for that matter, by telling everyone we know all about the dangers of swimming outside. As Becky says, outdoor swimming really can be a wonderful experience, Just make sure that you do it as part of an organised and professional group. Becky's words ran so true with me. You know, let's not lose perspective. We really can let some things slide. Let's not sweat the small stuff. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast and that in some way it's added value to your life. Thank you for joining me. I've been your host, Holly Hartley. Please make sure that you tell everyone you know who might benefit from listening all about the show. It's free to listen to, of course, in any app that supports podcasts. Make sure that you click like and leave a review. I'll see you on the next edition of Life Stories, where it's the final episode of Series 1. Remember, one person's story really can be someone else's survival guide. You are enough.